Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That uh, with an AEW Revolution Ultimate Preview Edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and it is Thursday so you know exactly what that means. We are here to talk all things AEW but not just that. We will be providing you with an ultimate preview for AEW Revolution, the company's first pay-per-view of 2023. Vintage Chris Vanini is here along for the ride through the duration of this episode. He will be along in a minute before we get to him, before we get to breaking down this past week in AEW. Allow the Silver King to open this show with a reminder that getting over is all about So be sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. Let everyone know how much you love the podcast, why you subscribe. Perhaps mention the ultimate previews and instant analyses because it is my belief that we cover pay-per-views and premium live events better than anyone else out there. Also, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. In a normal week, It would be for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all that good stuff. On a pay-per-view week, we do a little bit more. We will have polls both before Revolution and after it ends. That way you all get to vote with your expectation and final grades. We will read those in our instant analysis. That way your voice is heard about AEW Revolution. We will also, as of right now, be doing a live pre-show for Revolution on Twitter Spaces Sunday, 6 30 p.m. Eastern before their pre-show, kickoff show, buy-in. I don't even know what they're calling this particular one for Revolution. Before that begins, we will be previewing AEW Revolution live on Twitter Spaces. The way you can join, you can ask questions, provide comments, or just listen along is by following us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Chris, it's been a while, I would say, since you and I sat down to talk AEW, perhaps just before uh, AEW Full Gear, the last show of 2022, but welcome into today's show. And I am uh, decently excited, I would say, to go and break down this card shorter than normal, but some really interesting matches on deck. Yes, good to be here. Actually, I think the last time was when I was at uh, Winter is Coming in December. Right. Because so, every AEW event, some for some reason, goes right near you. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, but no, good to be back. It's been a few weeks since talked about AW on here, and we've got a pay-per-view to talk about in a pay-per-view I'm excited for, and one that is basically different than every AEW pay-per-view we've had before in, in kind of the, the typical fashion. Yeah, other than Forbidden Door, it's the most unique AEW pay-per-view that we've gotten just from a match card standpoint, and we will talk a little bit more about that later just to give everyone a, a level set for the way today's show is going to transpire first we will be breaking down everything that happened across Rampage and Dynamite that does not directly relate to Revolution, and then we will give you the AEW Revolution Ultimate Preview. So, Chris, let's kick things off with a match from Rampage, Action Andretti against Sammy Guevara. This was largely a sprint with some great counters and flying moves, including a running Spanish fly. Andretti hit a springboard swanton bomb and a shotgun dropkick, only to eat a huge lariat from Daniel Garcia over the ropes with the referee's back turned. Guevara followed with a GTH, he got the win, and he got some heat from the crowd as well. This was a damn good match with a well-booked finish, I thought. Getting more matches like this on Rampage 
would make the show for me infinitely more watchable. Yeah, that was my thought too. Like this is the this is the rampage style match you want. Just kind of a sprint, a bunch of guys doing some really fun stuff. You got a heel distraction on the finish, like just very simple by the books, good wrestling type of stuff that highlights some guys who maybe wouldn't be in the main event on Dynamite. Instead, they're in the main event at Rampage. It's good stuff. So let's move to Dynamite and the face of the revolution ladder match that involved Eddie Kingston, Ortiz, A.R. Fox, Kanosuke, Takeshka, Powerhouse Hobbs, Action Andretti, Sammy Guevara, and Commander, who is a Mexican luchador, randomly making his AEW debut in the match with nothing kind of preceding it. Now, this was for the brass ring and the TNT title number one contendership. Kingston and Ortiz basically eliminated themselves at the bell. They fought all the way backstage. Hobbs and Takeshka had a great sequence that ended in a German suplex. Don Callis was again watching Takeshka from a monitor, which is this inconsistent but long-term story that AEW has been telling with Callis basically scouting Takeshka. So one would assume he'll eventually manage him at some point. Uh, Commander did an entire tightrope run into a flying senton outside, which was an incredible spot. Fox ate a Death Valley driver into a propped up ladder and soon took a shooting star press from Commander on it. Andretti completely botched a Falcon Arrow into a propped ladder with Sammy's head and neck landing on the side of the ladder, which was scary as hell. Takeshka then took Commander off the ladder with a spinning blue thunderbomb into the canvas. This was the spot of the match, the spot of the show, the spot of the month, probably for AEW. Oh, it's only it's March just started the spot of last month, let's say uh, better than any spot in February for AEW. And. Maybe one of the best spots I have seen in a ladder match. I thought it was just so eye-catching and awesome, that blue thunderbomb. Daniel Garcia ran in to push Takeshka and Andretti off the ladder. Garcia helped Guevara put Andretti on a ladder for a swanton bomb off another ladder, Jeff Hardy style. Then he physically pushed and shoved Guevara up the ladder in the ring until Takeshka knocked them out. Hobbs shoulder-tackled the ladder, knocking Takeshka off. He completely twisted the metal of the ladder. And then, rather than getting a new ladder, which has been done in ladder matches for decades when a ladder is broken, Hobbs just moved the broken ladder and three referees ran into the ring to hold and grab the base of the ladder for him so it was upright enough so he could climb. So he gets to the top and the ladder's not tall enough. They didn't use the right ladder. So even another reason it should have been replaced but he ends up having to go all the way to the top. He's yelling at the referees, like legitimate, like Will Hobbs, not powerhouse Hobbs, out of character, like hold this damn ladder. I'm scared. He finally gets up. He grabs the ring and he wins the match. And then after the bell, Hobbs went to confront Samoa Joe on commentary when Wardlow walked out, killed a dozen security guards for like the hundredth time in his career. So Chris, there's a lot to unpack here. Okay. The match was an absolute spot fest, but like in the best way. Some of what they did was just sick as hell. It was a sprint ladder match. Basically, everyone except Fox, who just got killed, Kingston and Ortiz, who left, everyone else looked better coming out of it than they did entering. And that is always the purpose of matches like this. It's what WWE did this year at Elimination Chamber. Everyone looked better coming out of it. That said, the Falcon Arrow was idiotic to even attempt. And the finish for me was maddening. Like, did no one think that Hobbs running into a ladder would twist it? And then when it happened, how did no one, these really experienced referees, experienced wrestlers in the ring, 
um, the people on the headset, Tony Khan for the referees, whoever that is. How did no one say, grab a new ladder? Like, this shit happens all the damn time in ladder matches. It's an easy fix. The match was great. Hobbs was the right winner. But the referees really fucked this up at the end. So I downgraded it to four stars and an A-, minus. but it was still awesome. It, it, it was awesome. Uh, I'll start at the beginning. You tweeted the uh, clip of Eddie Kingston talking about ladder matches uh, beforehand. <laughs> it's just like, I ain't fucking climbing up a ladder. I don't know why I'm in this match. And then that played out with the, with the way the match played out. Him and Ortiz just went and did their thing. So, like, yeah. that was funny. That was good. Um, I, in general, ladder matches, I, I don't – I hate – doing moves onto and through ladders when you slam someone onto a ladder, when you jump, you know, the, the, the frog splash on the guy in the ladder. I hate that because that looks like it really hurts. It and does. I like my, and, <laughs> and I like my wrestling when it's more through a table, two tables, there's some protection. It's like, it's, it's less. So it's just, it's cleaner. I hate going through ladders. It just makes me cringe when I watch. Can I, can I do a 30 second time out here? You're just, yeah. you're saying you don't want any ladder spots in ladder matches. No, no, you can do ladder spots. I just hate like when a guy gets thrown off and he lands on the ladder, or goes through the ladder outside the ring, stuff like that. I think about, what about um, when someone's laying on the ladder and then someone jumps onto them. You don't like that. I hate either? it. I think about the, okay. the Brody Lee uh, or Dean. It was it what Dean Ambrose and Brody Lee at WrestleMania 31. Uh, yeah, Luke, Luke Harper at the time. Yeah, Luke Harper. I like I. I think about that spot all the time and I hate it. And, and Mox okay. talked about it in his book. I just, me personally, it makes me cringe because guys can legitimately get hurt on stuff like that, such as the Falcon Arrow, like we mentioned. So yeah. uh, that's just, that's just a personal thing, but really enjoyed the match. Like you said, everybody got, got to look good. It, here's the thing with the finish. Like, yes, it looked weird and kind of dumb, but there's so many things that could have gone wrong and really messed up the finish and really messed up the timing of a lot of stuff that I'm okay with it. If Hobbs had gone up and realized, Oh crap, it's not tall enough. Like, what do we do? Or if the ladder had started to the fall ladder was apart, broken. Right. But I'm saying like, if he's going up and it breaks it, like there's so many things that could have gone wrong that referees jumping in and doing something largely for a safety purpose I'm okay with. Yes, I agree. It looked dumb, but it was, I, I didn't come out of it being like, Oh my God, this like messed up the whole match because of how they did that. Finish. No, it didn't. I was it didn't mess up the whole match. I would have given the match no. a C or something. If it messed right. up the whole match, I've seen, other, I've seen other people freak out about it though. There have been situations where referees have done something similar, but generally when that happens, it's like a referee who's dead on the canvas holds his one hand on one leg of the ladder sure. to stabilize it. Or, you know, puts his body against it so it doesn't shift or something like that. This was three referees, um, kind of like what's that? Uh, I don't know what the painting's called, but the famous painting of like the guy planting the flag at Iwo Jima is like they, they ran around the base of the ring, uh, the base of the uh, ladder to hold it as steady as they possibly could to help a wrestler win a match. I mean, that's actively what they did, and the camera wasn't smart enough to pan away from them and zoom in on Hobbs climbing. It showed the entire picture the entire time. So it was just so poorly executed and so dumb when literally the only thing that had to happen was anyone with presence of mind saying, get a new ladder. No, that's fair. I mean, you'd have to make sure you don't see the referees throwing in the ladder to Hobbs, you know, like that's, you know, that's something else you got to kind of avoid the look. No, Hobbs, too. get out of the ring, 
you get one of the other ladders, you fold it, you put it in yeah. the ring. You, you, I mean, it takes 60 seconds. He's a big, powerful, yeah, strong that, guy. It's yeah, not like it's Tyrese like, Payne trying to set up a ladder. I know. You know? Taking the time for him to roll out of the ring, find a, find a new ladder, bring it. Yeah, a ladder is a, a minute is a long time in a ladder match. So now, you'd be like on. waiting for someone to come up again. There, there's no, there was no in that situation. There was no way to make it a perfect finish. And so ultimately, I think I it was fine. Okay. I mean, I disagree, but that's fine. Uh, so on Twitter after Dynamite, there was a quick clip of Kingston saying, quote, I quit AEW, which obviously, if they're putting it on their social media, it's storyline. Now, with the ROH streaming service starting, my guess is they're just going to make him exclusive to Ring of Honor in hopes of people subscribing to see him because he's one of the more popular people in AEW. And I believe he has some ROH past and history. I was literally just saying yesterday, you mentioned the tweet that I sent, that I'm this huge, I've become this huge Eddie Kingston fan over the last four years. And I really wish that I had spent a lot more time knowing and watching his stuff from CZW, from ROH, like everything he did basically before AEW was even a thing. So it felt like a direct shot to me where I said that 30 minutes before Dynamite and then 30 minutes after Dynamite, Kingston's like, I'm out. You're not going to get to see me on the show you watch every week. But I can promise you there is zero chance that I am buying an ROH streaming service as much as I may like Eddie. I do hope if that is the plan and he does go over there, they at least strap him up with the main title. I agree. I love Eddie Kingston, too. All right. On Dynamite, we had another All-Atlantic Championship match, Orange Cassidy against Big Bill. On Rampage, best friends were attacked backstage by the Guns, Big Bill, and Lee Moriarty. Orange was later told the perpetrators by a referee, like all their names. And I guess for some reason, he just said, well, since you attacked my friends, Bill, why don't you get another title match? Like, so that's how this happened. Uh, Bill straight up chokeslammed Orange through a table at ringside with the match continuing. Uh, then he stepped in front of a Danhausen curse on Stokely Hathaway. But Stoke stopped a chokeslam, instead hitting Danhausen with a backhand using his cast. Orange countered a chokeslam with an orange punch. Then Orange punched Bill's knee. Then Orange countered into Stun Dog Millionaire and a Tornado DDT before hitting three orange punches in succession, the third off the top rope to retain the title. The crowd loved it. Big pop for Orange after the bell. It was definitely fun. A nice win for Cassidy over a really big dude, a big, strong dude. And, and credit to Big Bill, too, because even though I hate the name, uh, the former Big Cass. Uh, is looking good in the ring and he's looking good in general. So it's nice to see that he's turned his career around. This match wasn't my particular taste, as you all know, but it was a hot opener in terms of fan response. And we will talk more about Orange later in the show. Yes, I agree. Look, Orange Cassidy has done a very good job of keeping himself over with the crowd. Uh, you know, he's largely been the same gimmick for a while. And that's a gimmick that can get old, but he's made tweaks and done things in different ways that have helped. And yeah, it was it was fine. It was good. So on Rampage, Keith Lee was dressed like a pastor or something. I don't exactly know what he was going for. This all white, big white robe standing next to Dustin Rhodes, who cut a promo setting up a tag team match with them against Swerve Strickland and Parker Bordeaux. I guess it's this coming week uh, on Rampage before Revolution. The entire segment was about 30 seconds with zero gain from it happening. Keith looked absolutely ridiculous. Then on Dynamite Wednesday, they cut another promo with Keith remarking that he forgot the jacket. So he was just like in a regular like like sweatshirt. 
they said nothing other than Dustin calling them naturally limitless as a team name. Now, I know why in storyline they're teaming. But my question is, why is that the storyline? Like, why did this entire Swerve Lee split happen with the Cinderblock attack and the introduction of a new group and a delayed return from Keith selling the effects of the Cinderblock attack? He comes back two weeks before Revolution. And his feud is with Swerve. Meanwhile, Swerve has been wasting time doing a bunch of random shit with the Mogul affiliates. He gets into a feud where he wants to take down second generation stars with no reason given as to why he wants to do that. So he's feuding with Dustin. Then Keith comes back and now they're doing a tag team match on the go home show for Rampage to Revolution rather than using this time away from Keith to give him a hot return on Dynamite and do Keith Lee versus Swerve on the pay-per-view at Revolution. Like, am I taking crazy pills here? Come on, this is, it's a joke, right? It's a joke, Goose. You ribbing me? Like, what am I missing, Chris? Well, we'll talk about it when we get to the pay-per-view, but, you know, this is a technically shorter pay-per-view for AEW just in terms of number of matches. And there, there's, a, there's a part of that is because you have a 60-man Iron Man, Iron Man match. But there is... There are a few things that you're like, wait, why isn't that on the pay-per-view? Keith Lee versus Swerve is one. The ladder match was another. It's the face of the revolution ladder match. Right. And it's and it's for a a opportunity next week on Dynamite, I think they said. That's why to me it was a weird thing to open Dynamite with was a ladder match for something that's after the pay-per-view. It didn't open up like, hey, revolutions here let's get into like the revolution stuff and so this was another part of that keith keith lee i look i don't know why keith lee is not in your world title picture or more of your tnt picture he's just he's been ever since he kind of he shows up great debut then he gets in put into a tag team and he's just kind of just done tag team stuff ever since and it's just so weird because we both feel like he's world champion material. You could put him in a world championship match right now against MJF and have him win. We'd all buy it. We'd all be into it. Like, I'm just confused at what he's been you're, doing. You're kind of taking so it to an extreme, though, if I may say. Like, sure, we'd love him in the world title picture. Or, as you mentioned, the TNT title picture. Or feuding with Samoa Joe over the ROH TV title. Or, hell, winning the All-Atlantic Championship. Given that, yeah. is completely worthless. But my point is... They, they built a storyline here, okay? They made them a tag team. They made them a successful tag team that won the titles, was really entertaining together, and only lost them to Acclaimed, which was a team that was even more over than they were. And then they did a, a feud split where they broke them up. At, you know, over a long period of time, they, they showed Swerve kind of being a heel and Keith trying to kind of stay a face and not get corrupted by Swerve. So they told this, you know, decently intricate long-term storyline between them. And then they do the mogul affiliates thing and they give Swerve a group. I mean, I hate the group. I think it's ridiculous. They look stupid, but they gave him a group and Keith Lee sold their attack on him to put the group over, to put Swerve over by sitting out for weeks upon weeks. Mm -hmm. You bring him back on a taped rampage and he's not like bloodthirsty where he just wants to absolutely murder Swerve for putting a cinder block on his chest and double stomping him off the top rope outside. He should be looking for blood, and yes. this should be a match on Revolution. You're right. It's a shorter card, and it needed to be a shorter card. And yes, there's another feud, Jungle Boy and Christian, where similarly, 
they had someone just come back and they did a two week build and they put it on the card. So do you want to do that theoretically for two matches? I don't know. But their next pay-per-view, dude, they only do four a year. It's another three months away. So I can't imagine them dragging this out another three months, which means this is going to get settled. This long term storyline that had some intricate plot points and people were buying into and people really want to see they're going to just what put it on a dynamite or a rampage even worse. Like, I just don't understand how you bring Keith back before revolution and then don't do Keith Lee versus swerve at revolution. If you weren't going to put the match on the card, then bring Keith back on the dynamite after, after. revolution. It's a yep. big return. He gets yep. to attack swerve and you build the storyline. To me, it just does not make any sense what they're doing. Completely agree with all that. Yep. Okay. I just want to make sure I wasn't going crazy. That's all. All right. On Rampage, uh, Stokely Hathaway took credit for Hook's return, and he set up a match against Matt Hardy. He was so confident that he would beat Hook, Matt was, that he made a stipulation where if Hook wins, he can face Stoke in a no-DQ match with all of them banned from ringside. Now, this was actually like a funny backstage segment, but number one, the FTW title being on the line didn't make any sense. And Ethan Page going along with the stipulations when he's supposed to be smarter than Matt and have Matt bending to his will, that was odd as well, especially given Stoke is his guy. So then on Dynamite, we get the FTW title match, Hook against Hardy. Hook hit a T-bone suplex, Hardy hit a side effect. Then Page used Stoke's cast to drill Hook in the head, but Hook still kicked out. Hardy went for the twist of fate, but Hook immediately countered into Red Rum for an immediate submission. Stoke sold that he was scared to fight Hook. He sat in the fetal position after the bell. I thought that was the best part of this entire thing. Hardy losing to Hook unceremoniously was not for me. And really, the thought process behind this entire thing was not for me either. Yeah, it was just, it felt like filler. It's, look, it's low mid-card type of stuff, so it's fine. But again, like, when this was your go-home show, this wasn't the thing I think you wanted to convince people to, you know, buy Revolution or whatever. So it was like, it was just kind of, it happened is the best way I could describe it, I think. All right. On Rampage, Lance Archer fought a jobber. Archer came out with Jake Roberts only to get attacked on the ramp by this jobber. The crowd actually popped big for him. Archer obviously dominated. He won a squash with a lariat. Now, he has been one of the most underutilized talents in AEW to date. Every time he gets brought back, you see him for like two weeks. You're like, oh, my God. Yeah, Lance Archer. He's awesome. I forgot about him. And then he disappears. So as long as he's actually back on TV and AEW is actually going to utilize him, then I'm excited. Yeah, he's an incredibly talented dude. He's he's kind of like their big show right now, though, which is that like he's just there to lose essentially any meaningful feud. So right. hopefully he can get, just kind of get something he can sink his teeth into. Because again, and lastly on Rampage, Jade down. Cargill in a promo package said she's beaten everyone. There's no one left. And all of our favorites should come fight her. But if she's beaten everyone and there's no one left, then who's left to fight her? I don't really understand. It was a bunch of whatever. It's the same one note promo as usual. I doubt you have anything to add, but um, I'm just getting really tired of Jade. And it it just feels like Tony decided, hey, she's going to lose the title to, to uh, Chris Statlander. Stat got hurt and he just decided, well, we'll just drag it out until she's able to recover from a really bad knee injury. Yeah, unless you have some big surprise, someone coming to the company, the promo of I've beaten everybody. Okay. <laughs> All right. You're right. right. I don't know. What, I don't know what's next now. We'll see. And if you're bringing someone into the company, having them start by fighting Jade Cargill, you know, I don't know if, if that's the move. Right. So, all right. Well, the Chris, is, that was everything that happened across Dynamite and Rampage that did not 
directly have to do with AEW Revolution. We got plenty more to talk about. Let's get into it right now with the AEW Revolution Ultimate Preview. Now, you mentioned this early in the show, so let's talk about it briefly before we get into breaking down all of the matches, which we will do by talking about what happened on Dynamite and Rampage. We'll also give you picks, predictions, and more uh, in terms of how the storylines will go forward in AEW. Uh, But Chris, this is an eight-match card, which makes it by far the smallest in AEW pay-per-view history. I think it's nearly half the size of some recent ones. Do you happen to know where we were at at full gear, double or nothing in terms of card size? The last pay-per-view full gear was 13 matches, three of those on the pre-show, so a 10-match main card. Before that, it was all out in Chicago with 15 matches. That's the one that stood out. Okay. Four of those on the pre-show, so an 11-match main card. So at the moment, as we're recording, there are eight. Uh, nothing known. Add, of, no, you have to add at least one to the pre-show because they right. There's not. There's play. nothing known about a pre-show yet. There may be more by the time this happens. But at, at the moment, we have an eight-match main card. So this could still get to nine or ten pretty easily with two on the pre-show, one or two on the pre-show, and eight on the main card. And given one of these is an Iron Man match, which basically is three matches. It's three twenty-minute matches. You know, in terms of time, it's going to be the same length of show. It's still not going to end until twelve twelve thirty on the East Coast. But it is shorter in terms of matches, number of matches on the card. So yes, let's go ahead and get started with the undercard. There's not really an undercard here. It's, it's really loaded in terms of mm-hmm. the, the quality of performers in these matches. In fact, there's only only one match on this entire card that I am just straight up not looking forward to. We'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, but let's start with the undercard. Jungle Boy against Christian Cage in what I have termed just a fight. Uh, because on Dynamite, Christian was in the ring. He said... He was done with Jungle Boy until he heard the championship proclamation from him over the last couple of weeks. That pissed him off because it should be him, not Jungle Boy, winning a title. Christian pointed out how Jungle Boy wins a lot of his matches by pinning combination and how he was weak as hell last week, hesitating on the concerto. He said JB and his generation treat wrestling like a video game while he uses it as an ATM, and he's not ready to stop cashing checks just yet. Christian then challenged JB to, quote, just a fight, which is why I'm calling it this. Uh, calling him a no-talent hack like his father, who gets by on looks alone. So then the lights went out for no reason whatsoever. Jungle Boy was shown on the big screen digging a grave with a Christian Cage headstone. Christian was spooked by it and left the ring. So my question here was, when did Jungle Boy become Darby Allen? Like, I I don't know when that transformation happened. Uh, Christian's promo, though, was top tier. That's Mm -hmm. the good shit that made him a main eventer back in the day when in my opinion, and I know many disagree with this, he never had any business being a main eventer. But promos like that, mic work like that, is why he got that type of spot. Jungle Boy's video I thought was just straight up stupid. They should have restarted this feud a few weeks ago if they were building it to a pay-per-view match. It's way too short of a period of time to get this back into gear. But credit to Christian, because the go-home promo did make up a lot of ground. Yes, terrific go-home promo. Christian is, is is just a master at that type of stuff, a veteran who brings a lot of stuff like that to this company. Um, going back to the your dad died type of stuff, uh, we've been through that before in this feud, but sure, it's fine to bring it back up. So then when they cut to Jungle Boy digging a grave, my mind went to some weird places for a quick minute before I realized what's going on. Going on. Um, but yeah, look, it's... I'm ready for both of these guys to move past this now. I know it kind of, you know, Christian was hurt, so things got delayed. 
but I, I think I'm fine with this being on the pay-per-view and this hopefully being kind of the big blow off that they've been building to. And Christian for that promo deserves a lot of credit for that. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, you're right. There is no issue whatsoever with this being on the show. There was an injury. They delayed it and they're putting it on the card and finishing it and getting it kind of over with as soon as they possibly can. So putting it on the card here and building it the way they did made a lot of sense. They just tried to make it as intense as they could in as short a period of time as they could, which I appreciated. And it's kind of the exact opposite of what they did with another title match that is on the card, which we'll talk about later. In terms of a prediction here, Chris, any result other than Jungle Boy beating Christian is just a head scratcher. I mean, I guess because we haven't really seen Luchasaurus, they could bring him back and he could help Christian win again. And they could drag this out another three months or to a TV special and then have Jungle Boy win. But there's really no reason for that. Jungle Boy should win. He should get into competing for some title in the company, all Atlantic TNT, or perhaps even the uh, ROH TV title. He's got to move forward with his career. Christian, they have to do something different with him. This has gone on too long. Jungle Boy wins. Yeah, I mean, I I was at Blood and Guts in the summer when Luchasaurus first joined with Christian. This thing has been going (laughs) on for a long time. The last pay-per-view in November was Jungle Boy beating Luchasaurus in the cage match, which which I think was maybe arguably the match of the card. That was a great match, yeah. So, yes, this, this should be the end of it. This should be Jungle Boy Jack Perry winning. All right, we have a TNT Championship match, Samoa Joe against Wardlow. Now, I figured this would be one of the easier matches to predict, but Hobbs winning the number one contendership threw me for a loop here because there's really no way he should lose a TNT title match to whoever wins this one. Now, I figured Wardlow would take the TNT title here, but Wardlow winning and immediately beating Hobbs doesn't really make any sense unless the goal is to just use this Hobbs run that he's on to reestablish Wardlow. And then if you do that, you're just kind of throwing Hobbs away again. Plus, let's not forget, they already did this triple threat back in November. So it's the same three guys involved in this title. Now, yes, it changed and Darby Allen had it and then Samoa Joe won it back. So I'm not saying that the story has just gone on for this four or five month period. But we're kind of back where we started with Joe, Wardlow, and Hobbs all around this championship. And because of that, I got to tell you, I'm just confused in terms of like who I'm going to predict to win to the point, Chris, that I'm going to let you go first. Yeah, you know, like Wardlow, they've tried kind of rebooting him a a bit. You know, he came back, shorter hair, had the really good promo uh, interview, I guess, with Jim Ross. Um, So like there's a lot there. You're right. It felt like this would be building up to a Wardlow win. But if Hobbs just won and we're getting that next week, I, I I think I have to pick Samoa Joe because I think I, I think um, Hobbs finally getting over kind of the hump next week is the, is the story. So Wardlow is delayed, I guess. But I'm picking Joe for that reason. And that's the difficulty. It's like so Joe cheats maybe and wins, but he's so beaten up by Wardlow that a fresh Hobbs takes the title from him on Dynamite in a really big moment in the first Dynamite coming out of Revolution, which they're going to hope a lot of people are watching. That's kind of where I lean as well. Like, there's every reason in the world for Wardlow to win the title here. It just doesn't feel like they're going to do it. And again, it goes back to what I said about the Darby Allen deal, where they went, you know, 
I forgot if Samoa Joe had it before Wardlow. Who did Wardlow win the title from? He won it from Scorpio Sky last April. Okay, so when Sky had it, that was at the end of like a back and forth hot potato with uh, Sammy Guevara. And then when Wardlow won it, it basically began a hot potato with Samoa Joe and Darby Allen. Wardlow, Joe, Darby, Joe. And now coming back yeah, to Wardlow. I mean, Wardlow held it for 136 days. Yeah, but he uh, barely defended it. And it was like the worst correct. title run ever. I mean, nothing correct. happened when he had it. But you're right. Yeah, he did have a title run. It, it was legitimate, you know, when he, when he had the strap. But my point is, is this thing has been a hot potato. Like it just keeps jumping from person to person. And recently it really hasn't succeeded in elevating anyone. In fact, you can make an argument. Darby Allen elevated the TNT title rather than the TNT title elevating Darby Allen. So we come into this situation here and it's like, what good does Wardlow winning it back do? I don't know that it accomplishes anything. It puts him right back in the spot where he was previously that didn't work as champion. So I'm going to kind of say the same thing. I think Samoa Joe somehow retains the title here, despite Wardlow's sob story that he told on Dynamite a couple weeks ago. And then Powerhouse Hobbs this coming Wednesday on Dynamite beats Joe and becomes the new TNT champion and gets elevated by it. I think that's what they're going to do. I also believe it makes the most sense. Yep, I agree. Same thing. All right, let's move to Ricky Starks against Chris Jericho with JAS barred from ringside. So on Dynamite, we had Jericho against Peter Avalon. If you remember, Avalon tried to answer the open contract last week and Jericho hit him with the Judas effect. So it was Avalon who actually dominated this entire match. I mean, the match was like three minutes, but he dominated it only for Jericho to hit a code breaker and get the one, two, three. Then he beat Avalon with a bat until Starks made the save. That was a setup for JAS to attack Starks with Jericho hitting Judas Effect to end the entire thing. It was completely unoriginal and, for me, totally lame, even if it did get a little bit of heat on Jericho. Now, I would love, Chris, to give some detailed, well-thought-out analysis on this match, but really, it is quite simple. Jericho wins far too many of these feuds where he should be putting people over. It seems to happen every single time, most notably recently, I think, with Eddie Kingston. And if he wins this one, there is just no way to legitimately excuse it. This has to be Ricky Starks going over. Otherwise, it is straight up booking malpractice. Yes, correct. Ricky Starks has to be the person here. And if you want to go the the old WWE trope of how the go-home show went, you know, it was right. JAS beating up on Ricky Stark. So um, I, I think it makes sense. Uh, you know, they've told a decent story of Ricky Starks trying to get back to Jericho. They did the gauntlet, you know, that fell short. Like, I've enjoyed what they've done over the last month to kind of get us to this. But yes, it's got to be Ricky Starks. I would say there have been a couple bright spots, but largely it's gone on too long. It's dragged. And Jericho's kind of domination of AEW television, it is starting to wear on me to a significant degree. He needs time away from AEW. Uh, The tag team championship match, the guns against the acclaimed against Jay Lethal and Jeff Jarrett, plus one more team to be determined in the second battle royal, this time a casino battle royal on Dynamite. First on Rampage, the acclaimed were cutting a promo last week after Dynamite that aired on Rampage when Jarrett's crew attacked and laid them out. And then previously, if you remember, I mentioned that Best Friends got attacked by the Guns 
and some of their other folks, Billy, Big Bill and uh, Lee Moriarty, that kept best friends out of the battle royal. On Dynamite, Orange and Danhausen took their place. So we got the Casino Battle Royal, and these were the teams. Blackpool Combat Club, Dark Order, Roosh and Preston Vance, Lucha Brothers, Aussie Open, JAS, Top Flight, and The Kingdom. So during the match, Mark Sterling's like crew, which we don't see anymore, attacked the Lucha Bros for no reason whatsoever, leading to their elimination. Then like a full five minutes later, the next team joined the match, which was Orange and Danhausen. When Butcher and Blade entered, Maria got double super kicked off the apron. Orange eliminated both BCC members. The guns walked out. And then Danhausen somehow eliminated both Butcher and Blade with barely any effort. Jarrett and Lethal attacked the faces after the bell because Orange and Danhausen won the match. Then Acclaimed ran down for the save. And Chris, this match was an absolute fucking mess. It was terribly conceptualized and laid out. There was no rhyme or reason behind the timed entries. Every single one was a different length. There was legitimately a four or five minute gap between one. And then the next one came 45 seconds to a minute later. We said from the beginning that two battle royals to determine two open spots on a pay-per-view title match was horrible booking. And the execution of it was only further proof of that. The victors of those two matches, let's not forget, AEW at one time had the greatest tag team division possibly in the history of professional wrestling. The victors of those two battle royals to be in a tag team title match, a fatal four-way on a pay-per-view, were Jeff Jarrett and Jay Lethal, and then Orange Cassidy and Danhausen. Orange, who was wrestling his second match of the show. Really? This is a pay-per-view title match. They changed the titles on television, putting them on the guns to book this bullshit? That is one big pile of shit. Chris, this has to be some type of swerve. Like, (laughs) maybe Orange is too injured to compete. Let's not forget he was selling the ribs and stuff, right? So, like, they can't compete in the match, and FTR replaces them live on the show. Like, I could see AEW trying to do the Hardy Boys WrestleMania-style last-minute surprise entrance into the match. And that would fit with the guns as champions, given the guns and FTR were feuding and that whole deal happened. Or the FTR shit that we're seeing online from Dax is completely unrelated. And this is exactly the match that we're going to get as advertised. And if that is the case, it is absolutely terrible booking, especially pushing best friends, a real tag team that people want to see aside for Orange Cassidy and Danhausen. Yeah, I just like you said, I have a lot of questions (laughs) about what's real and what's possible and where is FTR and why are the best friends getting hurt? Is somebody actually hurt and they can't wrestle like I do? We've seen injuries derail AEW plans before, so it wouldn't be unprecedented. But yes, this is completely bizarre that these are the teams that we got into this match. As for the Battle Royal itself. Yes, it was a mess in a lot of spots, but I actually think it was one of the better battle royals AEW has done. Really? Yes, because they're usually horrible at them and they're usually terrible at setting up kind of key moments, face to face stuff. And I actually think they did a decent job of doing that, but that may be why the entrances were so staggered because they had to wait for certain things to happen before they did them. That's me just speculating, but as I tried to figure out what was going on. So yes, the end was strange. Danhausen eliminating 
Butcher and the Blade who kind of went over themselves. Uh, I, going into this match, I don't know what to think. I, you're right. You, your point about where the tag team division is right now compared to where it was and what it could have been is just striking. I, I can't imagine. I mean, we're we're at odds a little bit on today's show. I can't imagine using an adjective to describe this match, that battle royal, anything other than something like awful, terrible, bad. Like AEW has probably put on 50 battle royals, I would say, in its three plus years of existence. There have been two or three that were good. And this was definitely not one of them. I mean, I'm not even talking about the winners, just the way. Right. I'm, the that's time what I'm saying. entries and, and I'm comparing it to what it usually is. And usually it is an absolute, even bigger cluster. Oh, I just, I think, I think this was way worse than even normal. I mean, <laughs> okay. it was just, it was detestable what I saw on uh, dynamite. Anyway, let's predict. Um, look, <laughs> I guess Jay Lethal and Jeff Jarrett could, could win the titles. Like they they're being used a lot and they do get a lot of heat, like credit for that. And Jarrett does move really well for his age. So maybe they could win the titles orange and Danhausen are not going to win um, the guns because there's two other teams there that they can pin. So for example, they can pin Danhausen um, and retain. There's a chance of that. And then you have the acclaimed, which is by far the most over team in the entire match. They're the team that never should have lost the titles in the first place. And really if they don't win them back, I have absolutely no idea what AEW is going to do with them. They made a huge mistake changing these titles initially on TV purely for shock value. And if they did it to get a pay-per-view title change pop, then fine. I guess that'll make some small level of sense. I'm going to pick the acclaimed winning the titles back unless FTR does somehow get into the match, in which case they would obviously right. win. Yes, that that's the big question is do we get FTR showing up somehow in this match? And that, that is, feels like it's possible and that would obviously change everything. But I'm going to pick the guns just because of the setup of the match. Like, if this was Guns versus Acclaimed rematch, I'd pick the Acclaimed. But I think the Guns, at this point, like, if you have plans for them, this is a way for them to get a win without pinning the Acclaimed. Right. So, so just if it is ends up being these four teams, I think I'm going to pick the Guns. I mean, it's it's totally makes sense to have them retain in a match like this, and then you have Acclaimed win one-on-one, or I guess it would be two-on-two or in another situation down the line, it is set up for the guns to retain. You're right. I don't know if given the matches on this card and whether titles are are not going to change, I don't know if they're going to look at a chance for a title change and say, eh, you know, let's just not pull the trigger. Again, especially since the initial title change didn't really make a shred of sense. Let's move to the next title match. The trios championship will be on the line, the elite against House of Black. So starting on Rampage. Uh, we had Young Bucks against Aussie Open. The Bucks hit an elevated Swanton bomb. Nick Jackson later countered a double-team move with a mid-air cutter. Their knees bumped on a failed BTE trigger, but they came back with stereo Escalaras. As they went for the finish, the lights went out, with Aussie Open taking advantage by hitting two signatures and a finisher for a broken fall. Because, heaven forbid, the Bucks take an excused loss. They followed with a totally choreographed move, and then the BTE trigger for the win. The lights went out a second time after the bell. Let's keep count. Okay, that's two. With House of Black appearing in masks and climbing the ring apron, they went off again. That's three. All of them disappeared. And the way this match was put together was so antithetical to my taste. There was no tagging, totally overdone choreography, zero selling. And then the House of Black lights off, lights on bullshit. It just, I didn't care about this at all. 
Yeah, I didn't either. You know, the, the Bucks have been on rampage now a few times in the last month or so. Um, it, it was entertaining, at least. They did entertaining moves, but it was very much the worst of what you see from the Young Bucks in, in, in their style and the stuff I know you don't like and the complete lack of tagging and Rick Knox technically counting to whether it's 10 or 20, I don't remember, but it, incredibly slow. And so it was fine. It was whatever. But you're right. The lights on and off. It's happening too much. It's it's happening way too much. Well, that was three. I think I counted there. Right. So let's go to Dynamite. Uh, the elite made their entrance for no specific reason. There wasn't a match announced or an interview or anything. So they made an entrance when the lights went out Four House of Black appeared behind them. The lights went back out five. We heard what sounded like fighting. The lights went back on to the elite laid out and House of Black holding the titles in the air. The lights then went out again, six, and the segment ended. It all lasted about 30 seconds. Uh, House of Black in a video promo later dropped the titles that they had stolen from the elite and said the elite had already lost. Now, (laughs) my biggest frustration here is AEW had a month once the elite returned to TV with a chance to actively build this as a storyline for a pay-per-view title match. Instead, the elite fought top flight and AR Fox twice, and their interactions with House of Black have been shit like I just described, like lights off, lights on. Um, There was the glitch in one of their vignettes or one of their promo packages. Given plenty of time to build for a pay-per-view title match, including the last two shows in particular, because we're now in the go-home period, they punted and they did nothing. I know this is going to bang. Because the talent of all six wrestlers in this match is immense. This has a chance to be the AEW match of the year. I mean, that's how much I believe in everyone wrestling in this match. But the lack of actual storyline and the horrendous booking here has left a lot to be desired for a big match on a big show. This is the kind of thing that makes you roll your eyes when you see Tony Khan win the Wrestling Observer Booker of the Year. Exactly. Because it's like... Great point. Come come on, man. Like, like nothing's happened. Like you said, there was an opportunity to do something. This match is going to be awesome. But, like, I want some story with that. And they just gave us none of it. Yeah, it's like, hey, guys, we're going to put six good wrestlers in the ring. And one of them, one set of them, wants the titles. So, okay. I mean, that's the baseline. Then... How about something about House of Black doesn't like the way the elite, which are all EVPs, are running the company and how they're not getting opportunities or how they get marginalized because of their beliefs. Or I mean, there's so many different things they could do, and they just did none of it. And now, in terms of making a prediction, I have a few conflicting thoughts that are kind of bumping together here, okay? Because on one hand, the elite should not be dropping the titles after 51 days. Yet House of Black is the perfect trio in AEW to hold these straps and they should be the next set of champions after the elite and it stands to reason that the elite's title reign would have been a lot longer obviously had it not been for brawl out which forced the titles to be vacated then they had to win them back from death triangle and then did the seven match series one constant with Tony Khan's booking is he will delay but not change plans. We just mentioned it with Jade Cargill and Jungle Boy and Christian as as examples. And that often leads to shorter than they should be title reigns because something will happen, but he still wants to go to the end result. So I'm going to take House of Black here, even though it does feel like it's rushed for Elite to lose the titles so soon after winning this huge best of seven series that culminated over two months on television and pay-per-view. 
But despite all that, putting House of Black in this match and not strapping them up would be such a massive mistake that I do not see how Tony Khan would make it. I agree on all those fronts. House of Black is is the kind of team you want to highlight with the trio's title. Had Brawl out not happened, you'd have a different elite title reign, but I just generally have not really cared much about the elite as trio's champs. You know, just like they don't need to be the main event every time, but they still are your biggest stars of the company. And I just feel like they've, I don't know, they've just kind of been elsewhere outside of the main stuff generally just doing whatever they do on their own. I'd like to see them get it back in the mix for some other stuff. Maybe tag team titles. Maybe not. You know, Adam Cole's coming back mm-hmm. uh, pretty soon here as well. So, like, there, there's some different things you can do here. He's coming I'm back, I pick. think, this coming Wednesday. Uh, yes, I think He's having right. his in-ring return, and they're doing the new show. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, I'm going to pick House of Black as well, but I agree this match is absolutely going to bang. And one other thing I wanted to note, I wrote down in my notes, is that on Rampage... Uh, when House of Black showed up, uh, when one of the light things happened, Jim Ross is trying to describe them, trying to be like, who is House of Black? Give <laughs> okay. us the story. That's what commentary is supposed to do. Right. And he goes, he's just saying some stuff and he goes, you know, they live a unique lifestyle. Not that that's a bad thing. Not that that's a bad thing. <laughs> and then just kind of moved on from there. So credit to Jim Ross for uh, attempting to give us some sort of story. Uh, I should note here, just because this got released while we were talking and doing this ultimate preview, uh, Jungle Boy versus Christian Cage has been called no holds barred. So it's no longer, quote, just a fight. It is officially no holds barred. And he is being promoted. Jungle Boy is on the uh, poster, if you want to call it that, as Jungle Boy Jack Perry. Jack Perry being the big name alongside Christian Cage. Jungle Boy, smaller in quotes. So it does look like they have made that transition for him which is interesting. I will say, Chris, you know, I, we probably should have mentioned Jim, Jim Ross is vindicated. Jim Ross is vindicated. He is vindicated. He was character. always right about that. It was just <laughs> annoying. It was just annoying, yes. like that he was going against what everyone agreed upon was the guy's name, but yes. he was always right. You are correct about that. Yes. Um, the thing that's weird about this is they have a Texas death match on this card and they're also going to do a no holds barred. That just seems kind of unnecessary. There are a lot of stipulations on this card. Every single one is either a tag team or has a stipulation other than the TNT title match. The women's Jericho, match is playing triple threat also. but Yeah, triple threat. There, there's only one singles match with no stipulation, and it's the TNT title, but there is a title on the line. So Right, and even then, you know, like, someone can go through a table and it doesn't matter. You know, it's still legal, mm-hmm. so... All right. Uh, women's championship. Jamie Hayter against Ruby Soho and Soraya in a triple threat on Rampage. Tony Storm fought Willow Nightingale. This got the double commercial break as usual. Willow hit a great cannonball into a Death Valley driver. Soraya distracted on the apron. So Willow dragged her into the ring, which opened the door for Storm to take out her knee and hit Storm Zero for the win. Soraya then grabbed the spray paint when Ruby Soho made the save. Jamie Hayter and Britt Baker then attacked the heels. It was well wrestled match. Two of the most talented women in the roster. The post-match was so paint-by-numbers, pun not intended about the paint there, uh, but it was so paint-by-numbers that I could have guessed the way this went in my sleep. Yeah, it was fine. It was a good match. enjoyed it. I, I like that Willow Nightingale gets to be highlighted in some of these situations. And yeah, it was paint-by-numbers, but like, I don't know, it makes sense. They've been telling a story here. And so I was, you know, they continued uh, just where that story goes. Well, that went on on Dynamite as well. Storm against Rio. Soraya constantly distracted Rio during the match and kneed her in the face outside. 
So Hader and Baker walked out again. Storm caught a 619, but Rio avoided a hip attack and cross-bodied her outside. Storm eventually hit the hip attack, taunted Baker, and put Rio in a cloverleaf. But Baker distracted Storm, and Rio beat her with a roll-up. Soraya stood in the ring waiting for Hader to hit her cue and get in and brawl against her. So they eventually fought. Soho ran down and socked Soraya in the face. Then she paused, hit Hader as well, and the three of them brawled until getting separated by referees. I'm not really sure the point of having Storm beat Willow only to lose to Rio or why Hader and Baker were just happy to help Rio, but not Willow. This whole thing to me is just, it's an absolute clusterfuck. If there's a storyline reason unveiled at Revolution for them doing it this way, such as someone making a debut and siding with one side or the other or a heel turn or something like that, then it all may work out in the end. I'm going to leave that possibility out there. But despite me very much liking Hater and Soho, I cannot force myself to really care about this match. Here's so something stuck out to me during the Britt Baker, Jamie Hater promo backstage. And it's been the issue for a while, which is Jamie Hader has been unable to kind of break free of Britt Baker and be on her own. And she still feels like Britt Baker's sidekick, even though she's the champion. And part of this is because as they're cutting this promo, Britt Baker's looking at the camera instead of looking at Jamie Hader talking. And that is what a... That is what a leading person does because it's like, you're supposed to be looking at me. I'm looking at you through the camera. And so I just, it, it continues that Jamie Hader has not been able to just kind of be her own thing. She's still Britt Baker's teammate. And so I think, you know, that, that breakup never happened and we thought something could happen there. And so they went down this path. I'm interested in this match because I do think the title is pretty wide open. I could honestly see it going any which way here. So that is, is interesting. Um, so I guess I'll disagree, but I, I am in, interested in this match. Okay. Well, in terms of a prediction, I do have Hater retaining, uh, Soraya holding the title would be a disaster. Soho winning would make for a good baby face pop, but I don't really think there's a good reason to take the title off Jamie when she's been doing a really good job with it. And there's no hints of dissension with Brit or anything like that. Really Baker Hater should probably be the feud that ultimately ends Jamie's reign. I don't know if they're going to do that. They seem to be getting along famously. Uh, but in this match, it's a triple threat. Um, Hater pins Soho, retains the title. That's where I'm going with. That is my pick as well. I agree that we need Britt Baker. I mean, we need Britt Baker to turn on Jamie Hater at some point. Just be jealous Get that jealous. she's been the yeah. champion for so long. Not that I know jealousy is a common women's storyline, but just like, you know, two friends, two teammates break up because one is the title. Like, that's a that's a good story to go. So I agree that was all this time. Jamie Hater retains. Yeah, tale as old as time in wrestling. It's not just a women's situation. Yes. It's with everything. Um, but you did make a good point that even though Hater is being pushed ahead of Baker and standing in front of her and things like that, with Baker always there alongside her, it just feels like she's kind of her second who happens to be the champion. That's just kind of the way that the title mm-hmm. reign has felt to this point. All right, we got two matches left. They are the co-main events. Hangman Page against John Moxley in a Texas Deathmatch. So Mox on Dynamite after his match last week taped a bloody promo in a stairwell. And when I say bloody, blood was literally pouring from his skull onto the stairs. He said he lives for violence, even if it's not something most would be proud of. He reminded Hangman that Page is the one who wanted this feud to continue, and he promised to leave no doubt that he is the batter animal, even if Page is great in his own right as a wrestler. It was a typically great promo for Mox content wise. 
And him talking shit with this type of vigor while he had one eye fully closed because there was so much blood pooled in the socket. Plus, the way he stared into the camera and made this simultaneously eye-catching and tough to watch was really unique. It was a hot go-home promo for a pay-per-view. Do I love all the blood and guts? I don't necessarily. To me, it's different when someone is like blading in a match and then someone's already bloodied and kind of giving a promo like this. It was such a striking visual that it really hammered home the violence that we're about to see in this match. Well, and I think think it's worth noting that, you know, the previous Dynamite when Mox bladed with 30 seconds left in the show, and <laughs> I called that ridiculous, and I think you did as well. It's just oh, yeah. completely unnecessary, has to blade. But clearly, that was used to set up this promo. So well, you do it. Who knows? I, I think that's what happened. I think I think that was the purpose behind it. I don't think he bled for the promo. I think that was a week later. Ones. We find out that's the reason he bladed. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I, I that's that's what I'm thinking. Yes, are we, bleeding, was a very, are we bleeding for promos now? You know, like no, I, that's what I'm saying. I, yeah. like kind of. I don't know, not separately, but kind of. So this um, great, great promo. Yeah. Did have you read Mox's book? No, not yet. I don't have a copy. I got it for Christmas. And like a month ago, I read it. I read the whole thing in a day. Oh, nice. Like it, it's it's an incredibly easy read, short chapters, um, engaging content. I found it really, really good. And he kind of gets into joining AW, doing CZW, and just kind of the, the masochism that, that he likes. And you can kind of just get a sense for that. I still hate it. This is going to be a bloody mess that I'm going to be a little bit uncomfortable with. But this is the moment you bleed. You don't need Moxley bleeding every single episode when you're leading into a Texas death match. This is the moment that you bleed when it means something. Right. So it, like, t- it takes away the effectiveness of when he gets, you know, yes. ripped open. His skull gets ripped open in this and match. It, like, oh, it's Mox bleeding for the fifth time in five weeks. It's like. Okay. Right. Especially when it's a Texas death match. It needs to feel different. It needs to feel bigger and not just now we have weapons in the match this time that I bleed. So that's the criticism of Mox blading too much. But I am still very much looking forward to this match. Um, they, these guys have done a good job of telling the story of Hangman trying to prove himself as a tough guy coming back from that concussion. And now it's just like, it's like two angry guys. Neither one can be the one to be like, all right, man, like we're cool now. So they just keep going up and up and up a level. And I'm into it. Yeah. And Hangman uh, continued also on Dynamite. He cut a promo from some random stable saying he has nothing left to lose since so much has already been taken from him, including his memory from the concussion. He promised to take as much as he could away from Mox while acting as a bloodthirsty son of a bitch, which is what it's going to take to beat Mox. Now, this started like weak as hell, but Hangman really found it in the second half. And it definitely makes you wonder who's going to come out on top in this match, because all in all, this is probably AEW's best built storyline since CM Punk and MJF. And it started kind of by accident with the in-ring concussion live on television. There's so many matches from AEW that are really lacking in storytelling, but Mox and Hangman really deserve credit for making this a super compelling match on a big show. When you go into making a prediction, I could definitely see either guy winning, but Moxley losing as... I would say the defined heel in a match where both guys are kind of tweeners based on what they've done and and the type of things they're saying. 
Moxley losing here and finally kind of putting Page over and giving Hangman a moment to kind of rekindle some of what he's lost since his title reign didn't really go as expected. I think there's more of a benefit to that than Mox just beating another guy and remaining one of the top people in the company. Plus, we don't know whether Mox is actually going to take that time off that apparently he keeps delaying um, when he returned earlier than expected to win the title after the CM Punk fiasco at Brawl Out. So I'm going to go with Hangman winning this. It makes a lot of sense to me to put Hangman over and potentially make him the number one contender for the AEW World Championship coming out of this. Yeah, I'm going with Paige as well. The, the purpose of this feud, the story they've tried to tell is Hangman's getting it back. He's getting, you know, he, it's it's about reminding us that this is a top guy in the company and there's a reason to get behind him and believe in him. And this is what they fought uh, twice. This is their they fought fourth match. Tech, it's their fourth if you count the concussion one, I believe. Yes, well, you have to. It yeah, was the first yeah. one, yeah. Yeah, well, because you had, you had uh, Paige won in, in January, um, Moxley won in February. Those were on Dynamites. And so now you've got kind of the trilogy or the fourth one, however you want to look at it. And Moxley, you know, he he's he's had some wins. He bloodied Evil Uno. It makes sense that I think Paige gets the win here. For sure. And let's finally get to the main event, which will last 60 minutes. But I promise you, we will not spend 60 minutes on it. The AEW World Championship, MJF defending against Brian Danielson in an Iron Man match. Let's first talk, of course, about what happened on Dynamite. Then we'll go and talk about the match itself. There was a solid video package on Dynamite, including Dean Malenko remarking how the only thing MJF can do for 60 minutes is talk, which was my highlight of the entire thing. Uh, Danielson came out with four minutes left in the show. He gave Renee a high five. She brought up some tweet or Facebook post from MJF in 2014 that AEW didn't show on screen or anything, even though it was referenced. MJF quickly interrupted, but Brian immediately cut him off saying MJF has done nothing to earn all the things he claims he deserves. Brian said all MJF does is cheat and take shortcuts, and he deserved being left by his fiance. Danielson said he, unlike Max, has fought for everything his entire life, including leaving WWE for AEW because he wanted to fight. It ended with an obviously planned profanity as Brian was bleeped while promising Max would, quote, get his fucking head kicked in. It was an exceptional go-home promo from Danielson and a good moment overall to have Brian, not MJF, do the talking in a segment like this going into Revolution. It didn't necessarily make me think Brian is any more likely to win the match, but it amped up the intensity for the second straight week, and it at least created some doubt that this would be a walk away with MJF retaining. Agree. This was a very good go-home segment. And it's interesting, like MJF didn't say anything like, like, you know, you would think like MJF, the big talker, the guy, like the the guy you always want to hear from when he comes out. And instead it was, he comes out and Dan O'Brien's like, no, 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 fuck you. I'm going to talk my shit. And then the show's over. Mm -hmm. So like that, that was a needed intensity on the, on the Dan O'Brien side of it, because we've gotten that from MJF in previous weeks with the things he's talking about, taking pills, all the stuff, all this yelling and everything he's been doing. We hadn't quite gotten that from Dan O'Brien yet or Brian Danielson. Yeah, sorry. And, and so we got that here. So you're right. It did up the intensity. It was a good go home segment and it did make me believe more than I did previously that maybe Brian Danielson 
can win this. That like, hey, if you were ever going to make Brian Danielson your champion, however little time he may have left wrestling because of everything he's been through, this would be the time to do it. So like that that thought is back in your head now when he when he talks about why he came to AW. Well, that last point you made is what I was going to get to next because there's two ways to look at this match: what AEW should do, and then what we're going to predict is happening. Let's start with what AEW should do, and that is change the title because their momentum has slowed drastically. You could even say it stalled completely, and they really need something that is going to move the needle for them as a company. Now, yes, strapping up Jericho and then Mox and then relatively soon after Danielson is basically saying, hey, the only way we can succeed is if wrestlers that WWE has established are holding our main title. But if you can brush that criticism off your shoulder, which would be legitimate criticism, but if you're Tony Khan and you can brush that off the shoulder, then Danielson winning the title would legitimately move the needle. Strapping up Ryan one month ahead of WrestleMania would go a long way to lighting a fire under AEW. And if there is any way that MJF losing could be excused, it would be getting defeated by the best wrestler in the world in a 60-minute wrestling match. There's really no shame in that if that was going to be the booking, and it would play into the William Regal revenge angle. So before we get into what we predict will happen, do you agree with me that that is what should happen? I think I do. And it kind of goes back to what I mentioned before. Like AW has just, it's been missing its old star power that it had, you know, basically until CM Punk went away. You had Punk, you had Adam Cole. Oh, CM Punk, had, I completely forgot about Punk. Yeah. Yeah. You had Brian Danielson, you had uh, Kenny Omega, you had the Young Bucks up top. Now everybody's just kind of been off doing their own thing or hasn't been around. And it's just, you're missing some juice. MJF was the big guy. He was the only main major star left uh, kind of that you had at the top. Mm-hmm. And that was always going to be the risk because once he won the title, like then you're kind of out of stuff. Like his story was going to be your big story and you've done that now. So now like where, what is the next step for the company? How do you move forward here? Because healed champion MJF where he never wrestles is not that, Interesting. It just, it, it hasn't been. And I know typically in WWE, you have a heel, have the title for, for a long period of time and, and not a face, but putting Brian Danielson at the top of your company again, uh, as you have Adam Cole coming back, as you can do some other different things, uh, as you move forward in 2023, I do think would be a positive for the company. Also at a time when they are going through, uh, I think they're still going through the, the media rights contract stuff with, with TNT and whatever. Mm-hmm. So, um, I I agree. I think Brian Danielson probably should win the title here. I mean, if they did put it on Danielson, Dynamite on Wednesday. I don't know what competition there is for NBA, but it cracks a million. It may hit 1.1, you know, from a rating standpoint, because people will want to see what Brian Danielson looks like with the AEW title, what the storyline is, MJF losing. What does he do after that? It would really be a compelling, interesting title change. And I'm glad you mentioned CM Punk because look, I, I, it's what I just said, you know, it is a fair criticism or it is fair to point out that even three years into the company, AEW struggles with anyone on top other than former WWE, you know, main event superstars. So Chris Jericho, John Moxley, um, CM Punk, which is what you added and Brian Danielson, perhaps now. So 
that is something that really needs to be thought about because when Hangman Page won the title, you know, everything kind of went down a little bit. And then with MJF winning the title here, everything else has kind of gone down a little bit as well. The question, though, Chris, is do we think Tony Khan is actually going to do that? And for some reason, even though I think it makes all the sense in the world to change the title, I just don't think he's going to do it. Like, sure, MJF has not been a great champion to this point. He's held the title for over 100 days. In that time, he has only defended it once against Ricky Starks on television. And that was back in December. I was there. But taking the title off of MJF on the first pay-per-view after he won it, after it took him three years to climb the mountaintop and win the title as one of the pillars of your company, it might be just a little bit too reactionary. So because the point you just made, which was good, I actually forgot, Adam Cole is about to come back as a top-tier main event babyface. Hangman Page may come out of the Moxley match as a top-tier main event babyface. That sets up two clear forthcoming challengers for MJF, who I believe will leave Revolution still, the AEW World Champion. And to give you an additional prediction, I expect this Iron Man match to go very similarly to the Kurt Angle-Brock Lesnar Iron Man match on SmackDown all those years ago, where MJF realizes, hey, you know what? Let me just beat the ever-loving shit out of Danielson with a chair, the dynamite diamond ring, whatever I can get. I'll take two DQs, then I'll pin him three times, and I'll go up 3-2, and then we'll figure out how the rest of it's going to play out. I think he is a heel. He always looks for ways to kind of issue the rules, and I do believe something to that end, something like that, will happen in this match that allows MJF to beat the best wrestler in the world, Brian Danielson, in a 60-minute wrestling match. You also got to uh, Ricky Starks. They're going to try to position him as and Ricky Starks baby face if if he beats Jericho as we predicted. Although so, MJF yes. already beat Starks, so he he did not that he immediately go up to MJF, but that you're, you're, it's another baby but face. Hey, I think Wardlow they, also they could rekindle the Wardlow feud. That's possible as well. That is something that they probably need to get back to at some point for Wardlow's sake. Yeah, um, as well. Yeah, look, MJF, you're right. He he. He won the paper. He won the title at the last pay per view. Do you want him to lose it right away? But MJF is also kind of a guy. Even though he's a heel, the chase is more interesting than the reign, mm-hmm. which is typically the fa- would typically the case for a face. But MJF just kind of seems to fit in that bill. But I am going with him retaining. They have built him up to this point. Um, they are going to keep him at the top of the card. They're going to have a lot of good baby faces for him to go up against moving forward. You're right. If Brian Danielson wins, who does he fight? I I don't know. It, it, there's, there's nobody who really fits unless it's a face versus face that we're going to do it for the sake of wrestling, which is certainly possible. But mm-hmm. there aren't really any other heels left. Top, top heels left. It's it's MJF. I mean, you so. can you could elevate Swerve. You know, you could elevate a couple yeah. people, but but you're right, largely. So, yeah, I am going with MJF retaining as well. All right, so that is our AEW Revolution Ultimate Preview, Chris, which leaves just one more item of business, and that is our pre-show expectation grades. A reminder, all of you will get to contribute your pre-show expectation grades by following us on Twitter at Getting Overcast and voting in a poll that will get published 7 p.m. Eastern on Sunday, one hour before the main card of AEW Revolution begins. And of course, we will have a second poll once the show is over for your final grade from AEW Revolution, we will announce, share, and discuss 
all the grades on our AEW Revolution Instant Analysis Podcast, published shortly after that pay-per-view goes off the air. Chris, we always start with you when it comes to the pre- and post-show grades. What is your expectation for AEW Revolution? This is, I'm right, it's interesting because like we said, this is unlike any AEW card before where we'd have 13 to 15 matches and half of them I don't care about. Right. I, I care about almost every match on this card, I think. And so in in the the we're going to get a banger with the the trios match. I think the Iron Man match will be great as well. I was also you know M, uh Danielson and Hangman Page did their time limit draw match um uh at uh in Dallas as well at Winter's coming the year prior. So we I've get seen, it. I've you seen, seen every good AEW match in Dallas. <laughs> I, I I've seen them. So I've seen them do it in person. It'll it'll be good. It'll be entertaining. I'm I'm between B plus A minus. I'm gonna go light A minus, like a like a ninety out of a hundred. I I think nothing like. There's one or two that really jump out that I'm really looking forward to, but there's also nothing that's really dragging it down. I agree. There's nothing really dragging it down. One thing that does seem to happen though with AEW pay per views, not all of them. Forbidden Door is an example of one where this did not happen, but there's a lot of really high level matches on the card and. You're like, oh, wow, that's going to be a really good match. And that one's going to be a really good match. And then when you watch it on the show, some kind of pale in comparison to others, because so much of what AEW does is work rate wrestling and spots and spots and spots. So, you know, when I go into a card like this, I'm just looking for the storytelling aspect. And you're right that I'm looking forward to most of the matches. And there's even some that like, I don't love the builds like Ricky Starks and Chris Jericho, where I'm like, hey, man, that's going to be a great match. So I'm still going to be really amped up for it when it actually starts. But there is a lacking storytelling element for multiple matches on this card. And even others that have it, it doesn't really amp me up going into the show. So I'm not that far removed from you. I'm going to go in with a B plus, something like a 88 out of 100 in terms of my mm-hmm. pre-show expectation grade. But because it is a reduced card in terms of number of matches, and because most of these matches are pretty damn intriguing and have an opportunity to meet or exceed expectations, then I'm giving AEW a big gap where they can really exceed my expectations. They can get an A, an A-, minus, you know, whatever the case might be. This does have a chance to be an A pay-per-view based on the way the card is built. It's just going into it, I don't know that I'm so excited and enthralled with the storytelling that I'm going to start there from an expectation standpoint. Does that make right. sense? Yes. The biggest thing with all AW pay-per-views is ultimately what are the moments you remember? Because sometimes the cards are so stacked with so many matches and so many maybe good matches. What are the things you're going to come away from remembering about this show? And I think the show has an opportunity for a few of them. I think Moxley, Hangman, Deathmatch could be a memorable type of moment. I think MJF Danielson could be a memorable uh, type of moment. Same for the trios. Yep, those so I three. Think there, there, I would say the, there is opportunity here to make to make moments, and, and you know, as much as WWE likes to say that, that is what we remember when you think back to previous pay per views. I couldn't tell you what the cars was. I'm going to remember. Hey, the All Out in Chicago was the one where CM Punk won, and then everything happened after the show. Like, <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, remembering, MJF, I'm remembering All Out, not for CM Punk winning the title. Sorry. I'm saying CM Punk winning and then doing what he did afterward. Like, like there's, there's going to be things. There's only a few things you remember from each show. And I think this, this show has the opportunity 
for a few of those. Yeah, I do think that is a fair way to wrap this up. So a reminder, of course, follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. You get to vote in those polls. You get to join us for a live AEW Revolution pre-show, 6.30 p.m. Eastern on Sunday. We'll kind of go a little bit into the official AEW pre-show kickoff show, buy-in, cash-in, whatever the hell they're calling it this time. Uh, We'll get into that a little bit, but we will wrap it up as soon as we can so that way everyone can watch as much AEW as they possibly can. So join us for that on Twitter Spaces. Join us for the polls at Getting Overcast. And of course, a reminder on the way out, the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. It's all about Defy. So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings on Apple. Leave a five-star written review. And if you do, we will read it live right here on the show. And please do not forget, I did mess up the order a little bit, but do not forget to join us Sunday night as soon as AEW Revolution goes off the air for an AEW Revolution instant analysis podcast right here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast feed. Thanks once again to Chris Vanini for joining me. Thanks to all of you for listening. This is the Silver King signing off and leaving you with just three final words. Bye for now. Thank you.